Some of us have been tracking through um, the, this history of redemption reading that we've been doing, where we have a, a, a different passage each week, because we're tracking the story of God. And this story is truly about God. Like, history of redemption, you think, okay, it's all about the people that are being redeemed. Well, yes, but more so, it's about the Redeemer, the one who would rescue, the one who is good enough and strong enough and powerful enough to actually save. And so the glory goes to Him. And so this week we read um, some, from some of the prophets, and just like we talked about, the prophets were God's kindness to His people. Now, I think some of the prophets would disagree. They would say, I did not choose to, to do this job in some of the ways that you call me. I get to be the, guy, the bad guy that just gives all the bad news. But really what they're holding out is, yes, there is a judgment of God. But there is a way of salvation that God has made. Even as He has redeemed the people, even as His judgment comes, He is showing His grace and His goodness and His righteousness to judge rightly. You see, because that's what we all want. We want to live in a kingdom with a good king. We want to have a, a God who is powerful enough to both punish and to save. Because each of us have experienced things that are worthy of punishment. Each of us have looked and said, that's not right. And God has seen in those moments too. He's so kind and good to us. He's with us. He knows the wrong that is done. And he comes and the promise is that he will punish the wrong. And so even the prophets are pointing to not, not you fixing yourself, but they're pointing to one who would come, who would rescue, and who would save. Again, just like he rescued and saved them out of a physical bondage, out of a physical slavery in Egypt, he's going to come again and he's going to rescue them completely and fully. This morning we look at the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah is one of the longer books of the Old Testament, and it's actually many sermons kind of uh, pressed together. These sermons that Jeremiah preached for 40 years to the people of, of Judah, and he would remind them again of who God was and what he's done, and he would call them to repentance. None of us like that word repentance. It's just not fun. It's not comfortable. You're like I, That means that something about me is wrong and I have to change. Yeah. Something about me is wrong. Something about the way that I live, something about the way that I orient myself is wrong. And I need a rescue. I need a savior. We already read it. We, we talked about it already in our, in our prayer of confession. We have too small a love, too small a desire for a God who is worthy of all of our affection. And so this morning, I pray that we would hear that. We need to ask God to do what only He can do. That He would give us hearts that would receive His Word. That He would give us ears that would hear His Word. Eyes that would see His beauty. So that you and I can be changed into His image. Not the other way around. Not we get to make Him what we want Him to be. He gets to make us who He has called us to be. For His glory. And so that others would see and know. That they would see and know our God. And that they too would experience His love. So let's ask God to do that this morning. Will you pray with me? God, we need you. We need you. We need you to put aside our distractions from this week. We need you to, to pierce through our um, biased opinions, our 
our past experiences and, and the way that we've thought of you, Lord, that they're sometimes wrong. Lord, we need you to come with clarity to tell us again who you are. We need you to be able to hear a call to repentance and a call to remember and a call to walk rightly with our God. Lord, our hearts, when we hear some things that we don't like, they tend to harden. Lord, give us soft hearts. Hearts that can be changed and molded. Lord, we thank you that this story is about you. This history of redemption is about the Redeemer, and yet there is a people that are being redeemed, and by grace, through faith, we enter into that people today. Lord, remind us again of your love for us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. May we rejoice in you, the God who saves. Amen. Jeremiah is um, a, a prophet, and I'm not, I don't want this story to be about Jeremiah, although we could do a whole introduction into who was the prophet Jeremiah, but you do need to know a little bit of background of he was called by God, which we get in our very first verse of Jeremiah 2, which says that the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So he is a prophet to Jerusalem. He's a prophet during the time when Israel is being torn in two. It's two kingdoms. And so he goes to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and preaches the good news of who God is and tells them again that they need to repent and turn back. Turn back to God. I don't know every story represented here, but I know there are a lot of stories represented here of people who have been in church for a long time, who have participated in church for a long time, who have heard the story of who God is, and yet we forget. We forget just because there's so many other distractions. There's so many other things that take our time and our attention away from God. And that's the story of Israel. Like they had been rescued out of Egypt. And then they had gone through the promised land for 40 years, following God as He led them, until finally they get to enter into, uh, sorry, into the wilderness for 40 years, and then they get to enter into the promised land, where he had, what He had given them. And then in that promised land, He gives them a, a kingdom. He gives them judges first, as we've talked about, and they, they want a king like every other nation, and so He gives them a king, He gives them Saul, and then He gives them David, and under David and under Solomon, they thrive. But sometimes in our thriving, we forget. Sometimes it's actually suffering that God uses to remind us again, like our need for Him. Because when things are going well, you and I rarely run to Him. I, I rarely run to Him. I can't speak for you. Maybe you do. But when things are going well, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't need Him so much. So I just begin to lean on my own strength and my own ability. We see that that's happening in Israel during Jeremiah's time. So let's get into it. There's this call in the very beginning, beginning halfway through verse 2 and, and, and verse 3. It says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. This first couple verses are just a call to remember when. Remember when I was your God and you were my people and we, we actually 
uh, spent time together. We were like newlyweds. We were joined together at the hip. Like we couldn't do anything without one another. And he's reminding them that, that time in the wilderness where you followed me, where I led you and you followed me, and you daily were remembering the deliverance that you had received, how bad it was in Egypt and how good it was in my presence, how I provided food for you, and I was present with you. And he's reminding them. And this, this uh, illustration of young lovers is throughout all of the Bible. All of the Bible. It actually ends, the Bible ends pointing to the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus, who is the groom, marries the bride, who is His church. And so it, it's, it's romantic, it's beautiful, it's selfless, it's this gorgeous love. And here, God is reminding His people through Jeremiah, don't forget that. Remember as I remember the way that you loved me and served me, and remember how faithful I was to you. Song of Solomon, which is, uh, again, this illustration, you get in the very first chapter, the lover and the beloved, and they're speaking to one another, and in verse 15 of chapter 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. And then the response is, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. They're just talking about like this, this beautiful relationship that they're in. And they can't help but tell each other how beautiful they are. Maybe you've experienced this in another person. And I know that like even as I'm saying this, some of us uh, who have been in relationships for a long time, who have been married for a long time, we, we forget we take things for granted. We just assume daily that they, well, they're kind of tied to us. They're stuck with us. And so I don't have to put that much effort in. And we just go about our business. And yet, there will be times where we remember. Maybe it's looking through an old book, an old picture book, right? And you begin to see. Or maybe you have a, a picture of your wedding day somewhere in your house. And you're reminded, man, that's crazy. We were so young. We did stupid things to show each other that we loved each other. But man, we really did. Like, we really went after it. That's what God's holding out here. He's saying, don't forget, like, in the beginning, when I rescued you, when I saved you, and I showed my might, it was like a, like a man flexing his muscles. Now, some ladies aren't into muscles, but I think all of us want to be protected and want to be cared for. And that's what God's saying. Don't forget. I did that. I rescued you. I saved you. And then he's even remembering their faithfulness. Now listen. Years and years. And so much of the story of Israel is them forgetting. And yet God remembers their faithfulness. He says, and you followed me in the wilderness. You did. You came after me. We were together. It was a mutual relationship, like Song of Solomon. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Like that response. And I pray that God is even reminding us this morning again of this youthful love. And as He reminds us of the youthful love, He's reminding Israel of His great salvation. 
that He alone came and rescued them. He alone came and saved them. And, and He required, it was, a, it was a high price. He said, listen, you're going to follow Me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what they found is that as they followed Him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they, fa- they, they received more than they gave. They received God Himself. And so they, it was a self-perpetuating following. But then they would forget. This great salvation that they have is, is expressed beautifully in Psalm 51. The psalmist says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So many of us forget the salvation. Like, what have we been saved from? We can be chasing all of these other things and yet God in His kindness has come and rescued us to Himself. He has saved us. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. May I not forget what you've done. May I be reminded, and may that stir in me joy. Not obligation, not duty, although those things are there, but to do them with a fullness of joy is what God is doing in His people. So verses 1 through 3, remember when. Verses 4 through 8 is, is a call to hear. A call to listen and a call to hear. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, and in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? He's saying, Listen, the, those who are leading you have forgotten, and they haven't continue to call you back, which is why I'm being sent to call you. Not as a priest, but as a prophet. The priests are the one who should, should be doing this. And yet, they've forgotten who God is. I've got to tell you, as I'm reading through this, it's very convicting for me. Like, as one who would stand and hold out who God is, have I forgotten? Have I forgotten? And have I given you something that isn't, isn't God? Like the priest would do in Israel. And so there's this conviction that comes that says, no, I need to know who God is so that I can give Him to others. And so we read this and we see that the people have not done that. The the promise of God is He set this people apart in the very beginning in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 6-9, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Isn't it great to be special? To know that there's other people out there and yet you've been chosen. Maybe it's because you, you, you're picked for a, a team. Maybe it's because you, you, you do well in school and so you're honored in that way. Maybe it's just like we've been talking about, this, this love that someone would choose you to love for the rest of their whole life. It's great to be special. Israel is special. They are people that, unlike any other, God has chosen for Himself. And then in this, the rest of this Deuteronomy passage, we see that it's not because of who they are, it's because of who God is. He says, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. This is, this is the God who is God of Israel. He's a faithful God. He's a strong God. He's a mighty God. If we go back to verse 3 real fast, um, you read, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And then you get this kind of weird phrase, all who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. They were set apart. And anyone that would come against them, God would go and he would, he would destroy them. Anyone who would come against his bride, like he's, he's a jealous God. He takes care of his people. And here we see that. The Lord, your God, is God. He's a faithful God. But we see God's continued indictment against his people in verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied in Baal and went after things that do not profit. Three different groups. The priests, the shepherds who were the people over them, the kings, and the prophets. Prophets, priests, and kings. They all let the people down. They all forgot who God was and instead gave something that was artificial to the people. The, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law, they didn't even know Him. There's a, there's a real conviction there. Like, How often do we get caught up in religion or in doing right and not know who God is? We just go about all of, the, all of the things that we do because that's the way that we've always done it. And we forgot, no, God has done this thing. The Almighty, the one who is powerful, the lover of our soul, both like wrathful, judging God and beautiful lover of our soul, that God, the only one who can be both of those things. He has rescued us. He has saved us. But we don't know Him. Because we'd rather go to things that are, that are man-made. We'd rather give law. We'd rather give instruction than, than this wild, awesome God who has given us instruction, but man, like we can't put Him in our box. He's too powerful, too mighty, too beautiful. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, went after worthlessness, and became worthless. Back in verse 4. You see, what we chase after is also what we become. This idea that, that they would chase after things that were worthless. And that they end up becoming worthless themselves. And instead, they're being offered true value. True beauty. And as they chase after true value and true beauty, they, they take on that same form. They become valuable. They become lovely. And so this indictment continues. 
the prophets, the priests, and the kings all failed. These prophets that prophesied by Baal, we read uh, in, a lot, in the story of Elijah from Second Kings this week, where we look and we see that um, God flexes his muscles as the God. Even though there's so many prophets of Baal, there's one prophet of God. And he goes and he stands before them and they both pray. And like I was talking to the kids earlier, God tells Elijah to, to build two altars. And that, so the prophets of Baal build an altar and they build this altar and the only thing, the only requirement is that it would burn, which is what an altar is supposed to do, but they weren't allowed to light a match. They needed their God to come and do it. And so as those prophets, those false prophets are praying, Elijah gets a little into it and he says, hey, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you just need to yell a little louder. No? Okay. And so for most of the day, they prayed and nothing happened. And then God told Elijah to cover his altar with water and to, um, to so much water that it filled trenches around it. And then a simple prayer to the, to the God. It does not matter what the religion or what the process is. It matters who it's to. Who are you going to? And unfortunately, so many of the prophets that used to worship the true God are turning to the prophet, to the gods of the surrounding nations. The beauty of the end of that story is that God shows up in might and power, consumes everything, even the rocks that the altar is built upon. That's the God. That's the God that Elijah is praying to. That's the God that you and I have. Finally, in Jeremiah 2, uh, verses 9 through 13, give us uh, the crux of the matter. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Keter and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. He's saying, listen, go anywhere, check it all out, and see if anyone has done what you have done. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? Even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. God's calling out these other gods. They're not gods. And, and yet, these other nations will cling to them. They won't just cast them off or throw them aside. They'll spend their whole lives devoted to these non-gods. And he's saying, but you have me, the God, the one true God, and yet you've cast me off. So what is a right response to this? Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Later on in Jeremiah in chapter 17, he says, O Lord, the, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. You see, this... This idea of living water. What, what we've seen throughout uh, our time in this series of the history of redemption is all these biblical uh, theology, like this, this idea of themes that would run throughout Scripture. And one of the themes that run throughout Scripture is this theme of living water. Streams. And remember who this is going to. This is going to people who live mainly in the desert. Mainly in an arid land. 
You and I, we have a faucet that we just go and turn it on and water shows up. But this people knew that water was the source of life. I can't do anything without it. I will die without it. That's how important it is. And so in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there's a river that flows through the garden and from the garden. Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So in the very beginning, God, in His garden that He has created, He is the source of life, and He's the only source of life. Psalm 65.9, which is a contemporary time of Jeremiah, the psalmist writes, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You see, everything came from water. Like the other things that sustain life, they need water too. The grain that you would eat to sustain life, it has to be watered. There's this original place where life comes from. And God's saying that that is my river. I am the fountain of life in verse 14. Or sorry, in verse 13 of Jeremiah. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Here's the deal. In the very end of the story, in Revelation, we see the same picture presented again. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the city, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. See, this theme goes throughout all of Scripture. In the beginning, God was the source of life. In the end, when everything is recreated, and sin is no more, and there's no more crying and no more brokenness, what's going to be the source of life there? The same river. God Himself will be the source of life there. And it's a fullness of life that we won't even have to experience in, in the broken way that we experience it now and the, the, the half, the dim, the dim way that we experience it now. We will experience it fully and completely then. Here's what the people have done. Instead of going to this river, this spring, this fountain, which if you know anything, a river or a spring or a fountain can sometimes be a little, uh, sometimes it floods. Sometimes it doesn't go where we think it should go. And so that's, that's kind of this life source is God. He, he doesn't conform to what we want. And yet what they've done is they've actually dug cisterns or wells to try to get a more controllable, more manageable source of life. And that's, that one hits home for me. And again, as we've talked about like the... the the accusation against the priests and the shepherds and the prophets, I just think about the places where we take God and we put Him in manageable, finite things. We try to control Him. And, and that's actually been done uh, by His people for a long time. We see it being done in Israel. And it's still done today. We build these cisterns. These man-made things to try to control a, a, a God who actually made us. And so the, the call then is to repent of those things. Because what we find is in these man-made things, they're actually broken. They're at the best temporal. They're only going to last for a little while until they break. But at worst, they're already broken when we build them. And we're trying to give life and it's just bleeding out through everything. And that's what the people are doing. They're turning to these other gods that 
are man-made, that can't offer any of the goodness that God Himself wants to give them. And they've turned away from God. They've committed two evils. They've forsaken what is true and they've built for themselves things that aren't true. I think for us today, that, that one hits home. Like there's some application points there. And, you, you know, we, we try not to make it, uh, I try to give you personal application because we don't know every one of your stories. But what we do know is that our hearts, we want to be able to uh, control these things. We want, don't want to feel out of control sometimes. And so we create different ways that we get to harness this in. We create different sized cisterns. Maybe it's a big well. Maybe it's a small well. Maybe it's a deep well. But what we don't do is we don't come to God who is this bubbling spring that is the source of life that you and I don't have control over. Instead, we build our own idols, our own things that we think will satisfy because we think we know what would actually satisfy us. That's the lie that most of us believe. We create a God thinking that we know what would actually satisfy us, and yet we have a Creator who knows us intimately. We talked about that love of your soul, like the person who knows you the best because He created you. He also knows what you need and how to be satisfied, how to satisfy you. And yet we've forsaken Him. You see, this... Chapter goes on and Jeremiah is going to use several metaphors to paint the picture. He's going to use the metaphor of a slave, a prey for other nations, the prostitute chasing other lovers, the choice of the vine, the choice vine that becomes a wild vine, a donkey, a thief that is shamed when caught, a bride who forgets her wedding dress. But perhaps the most telling metaphor is this one in 13. It summarizes the whole problem. We've forgotten God and we've gone after other things. This morning, as God is working in each of our hearts, because remember, this isn't, uh, this isn't a one-way communication. This is us together, sitting under God's word to remember, God, what are you trying to tell us? Where have I chased after other things? Where have I left this fountain of life and gone after water that's stale and tepid and that's probably just running through the cracks anyways? What have I chased after that I need to repent and turn from, just as God is calling Israel to repent and turn from their ways back to Him. It could be a myriad of things. For some of us, it's, it's people. Like We chase after people and look to them for sources of, of life rather than looking to God as a source of life. For some of us, it's our jobs. For some of us, it's school. For some of us, it's, it's like an approval of people. There's so many things that you and I can run after instead of running after God, the one who says, no, I know you, I formed you in the womb. Before you were ever anything, I knew you, and I loved you, and I created you, and I knit you together. Like that kind of God, the one who knows us and loves us so much so that what we have is we have that the source of life came and died. That sounds weird. The source of life came and died. How can life die? Well, this theme of water is just carried throughout all of Scripture. And what we see is Jesus himself uses this. He goes to the woman at the well, who is not one that he should be going to. If, if, 
you and I are writing this story, but God is writing this story. And so he's going not to the, to the Jews only, but he's going to the Gentiles also. And so he goes to the woman at the well, and he meets her there. And she's drawing water from a cistern, <laughs> from a place where it's a, it's a temporal water, it's a temporal source. But she's laboring, and she's, it's hard. And so she asks him to, to draw water, and yet Jesus says to her, listen, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He's saying you can settle for this, this fake, artificial, or you can come to me, the real thing. And so in that moment, she chooses to come to him. Because see, the, the source of life came and lived among us. He walked in perfect righteousness, like perfect obedience. All of these indictments against Israel, God Himself came and walked out in the flesh in Jesus. The ways that we forgot, Jesus remembered. The ways that our worship was half-hearted, Jesus wholeheartedly loved the Father. The ways that you and I uh, looked over people, Jesus saw every one of them. This is the source of life. And what did He do? He came and He lived it out perfectly. And then He died a death that you and I deserve because we have forgotten. He remembered. Even all the way to the cross. His death on the cross was not for Him. It was for us who have forgotten. So that you and I, because we would put our faith in Him and our trust in Him, are now reconciled to the, the river of life, the, the God who is the source of all life. You and I are tapped into that because of what Jesus has done. We do that by believing that He's done that for us. By believing that His, his death was actually my death. And His resurrection and fullness of life is actually my life, that in Christ I am hidden. You and me. Like 2,000 years ago He did that, and yet today you and I live in that. And even before that, they were pointing to the One who had come that would rescue and save the Messiah. So their hope was in Him even before He came. Our hope is in Him after He has come. And we trust that the work of Jesus is sufficient to bring us to this life. I love what it says. It says, the, Jesus, again speaking to the woman at the well, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you and I have received that, now you and I are sources of that life. Like we, we have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us that's doing that same thing that's providing life to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, to those around us. Like God is doing that. The same life that you and I have tapped into by our faith in Jesus he puts His Spirit inside of us. And now we become the source of life to others. That's beautiful. And yet we've forgotten. And so this morning we need to repent and say, God, I just, I've chased after these other things. Thank You for Your mercy. Like We don't even have to ask for mercy. We know that we've received it in Christ. We just need to remember. It's not a matter of like we need to beg and grovel. No, He has provided it. But we need to remember that He has provided that. Because then it changes the way that we live. Repentance means I'm not going to continue chasing those old things. I'm going to rest 
in the truth that you have saved, that you have rescued me, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are loving, and then I'm going to live in such a way that that's true by the power of your spirit and by the righteousness of your son being worked out in my life. So this morning we confess and we remember. Who is God? I think for some of us though, it's not even a a repentance like going back to our first love. I think some of us may have never actually experienced that life. Some of us may have heard about it before. And we've tried in our own strength to like become that. And yet, that's not what Christ is saying. He's saying, no, I've given you. I am the source of life. It requires nothing from you. So it's not that you can do it by going to church. It's not that you can do it by doing good things. And so maybe some of us have said, I've, I thought I had experienced that life. But really what I've experienced are these cisterns, these th- faith things. And I want to know who Jesus is today. Today could be the day of your salvation. God, that you would save. We beg you, Lord. Would you show yourself mighty to save the one who would come and rescue today in our lives. And for others of us, we have experienced it and we've just become stale and stagnant like Israel. We've just become ho-hum to it. It's just another day. Yeah, I know, I need to go do some things. I need to read my Bible. I probably should pray. And yet, that's not the fullness of joy. That's not the joy of our salvation. And so we repent. We say, God, I forgot. Thank you for reminding me. Now change the way that I live by the power of your Spirit for your glory. And we get to do that together as a church. Amen? Amen. Let's thank God. Lord, we thank you, God, that in your kindness you would call us to repentance. That in your goodness you would flex your muscles and show yourself mighty to save. That from the very beginning of time there has been a source of life. And it's been you. You breathed life into humanity. You breathed life into the earth. Lord, you created and you made. And then at the end of time there will be that same source of life providing a full and an a newness of life, a recreation. And in that place, all death will be gone and it will be only life. And so Lord, we thank You that all of that is possible because of Your plan to redeem a people for Yourself and that You've done it through Your Son, Jesus. Lord, would You convict us today of those lesser things that we've run after? Lord, would You remind us again of who You are You are the God who has come and lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, rose from the grave so that today we can put our faith and our trust in who You are, not in who we are. Lord, and as we do that, Your Spirit is in us and it produces the same life. God, may we leave changed, conformed, transformed into Your image today. We pray all this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.